Kiddos are obviously dismissed. We're going to be in Jeremiah tonight. You can go ahead and turn there. We're going to continue in our study of the major prophets. There are so many awesome titles that you could title a Jeremiah study, um, so, but they're difficult to share, so we're just going to go with Jeremiah part one tonight, and uh, I'll explain that a little more later. You can go ahead and turn there. We'll let y'all make up the title before it's over. We got 45 chapters of the same thing tonight. So let's pray. Uh, quick reminder before we pray, for those who are small group shepherds, we'll be having our quarterly meeting on Sunday at 5. Uh, please make that a priority. This is a reschedule from the thunder sleet that canceled our last meeting. Um, so uh, make sure you uh, uh, make that, and then there's a, a not ladies night that's coming up for the not ladies, and so um, keep an eye out for that as well, details on that. Uh, so let's pray, and we will begin. Lord, we come to you now, we thank you for this time, we thank you for the uh, crazy, sweet, scandalous, refreshing opportunity uh, each week to be able to gather here on Wednesday nights and to open our Bibles and to Consider what it is you would have for us to, to learn. I'm thankful for the Holy Spirit that um, indwells your children and that gives us understanding. I'm thankful that you give us encouragement in Scripture that if we think over what we've heard, you'll give us understanding. And if we, if we seek after it like silver, you'll, you'll, you'll grant it to us as a treasure. And so we want to humble ourselves before you tonight and ask that you would um, help us to, to gain understanding and uh, that in doing so, we would not be puffed up, but rather we would, we would have our faith strengthened and we would um, aim to build others up uh, with that. Lord, we thank you um, for the way that you are so patient with us, and I pray that we're reminded of that again tonight as we study uh, Jeremiah. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In his survey... Um, Dever starts off this study with a sort of a statement that I want to turn into a question, and it says, the belief that everybody has a right to believe whatever they want to believe has been subtly replaced with the idea that everybody is right. I'm going to say it again, and then I want you all, as I'm saying that, to consider what some examples might be of that. And we're going to be engaging that um, in part in, in this Jeremiah study. The belief that everybody has a right to believe whatever they want to believe has been subtly replaced with the idea that everybody is right. What are some examples of that that, that come to mind? Or are there any examples that come to mind? I'm prepared for there not to be if we have to move forward. Example. Yeah, we don't have like a legally mandated religion that everyone has to conform to. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, there's a if there's no absolute truth, then it's just kind of 
whichever way the wind's blowing or whatever you're feeling, and, and, and that's that. So what, how does that play out? What's the difference between everybody having the right to think what they want, to believe what they want, and then subtly moving to everybody being right? How, how do those play out differently? It eliminates accountability, sure. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's a great point. If, if everybody's right, then either you accept what someone else says is right, whether you agree with it or not, or, and you, or you'll be labeled closed-minded or potentially judgmental. Yeah, there's... Yeah, yeah. There's a difference between being winsome and wanting to help someone to understand as clearly as possible. There's a difference between that and being... Um, what's the word I was just thinking of? It just escaped my mind. There's a difference between that and, and um, being sort of therapeutic in, in your approach where you, I don't want to say anything that's too firm because if they don't believe it, it'll hurt their feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and then you let in a, way too many things that are permissible. It's convictions become sort of nebulous opinions that are really based on a whole lot of nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does it work or not? Yeah. And what works for you may not work for me, but you have to acknowledge that it, it works for me fine, so you got nothing you can say. It, it, it's funny, this thing that begins is everybody having this freedom turns into this thing where everybody's sort of imprisoned to whatever everyone else says is, is freedom, and it really limits uh, the conversation at that point rather than you know, allowing it to be as robust of a conversation as it needs to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah, we can land on some bizarre conclusions when we go down that route. Chad? It's interesting that you mentioned end time. Jeremiah, if you read through it, it kind of feels that way. It feels like good grief. Things are going from bad to worse. And frankly, God's people don't look much better than, you know, any of the surrounding, you know, nations or, or communities. And so um, in a land where everybody does what's right in their own eyes, if, if, if we shift from everyone has the right to believe what they want to believe to everybody is right, 
the biblical language for that is everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. And so in a land where that's happening, doing justice becomes more difficult, if not impossible, because how do you establish what justice is, what's fair, what's good, what's right? Well, you may say that's fair, but what if this guy says it's not fair? Then what do we do? Can you both be right? And then inevitably somebody is on the receiving end of what's not fair or what's not good or what's not just. Um, How can we say that anything's wrong if everything's right? So what we're going to consider tonight in Jeremiah is the overwhelming picture of God's justice. That's what we're going to be looking at, the overwhelming picture of God's justice. Jeremiah is basically God's message to his people <coughs> of coming justice, um, inevitable, um, inescapable, coming justice. Question, in what ways might we find ourselves cynical and jaded about the world we live in? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you can think, man, I'm, I'm praying and I'm not seeing it get any better. A lack of visible results, potentially. How else might we feel cynical and jaded about the world we live in? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those who are doing... Yeah, those who are doing evil don't seem to be being punished, but rather they're seeming to be rewarded with, with prospering. What else? Surely I'm not the only cynical and jaded person in this room. Yeah. There's not a real depth of character in general. It is appalling how we treat each other like garbage so often. I mean, just one, I almost can't watch the news now. I'm not, I'm not this isn't like a statement against how evil the news is, so don't take it like that. But personally, I just. I have a very difficult time because it seems like just the news is like a reminder of just one ridiculous, self-centered, negative action after another, after another, after another, whether it's a car chase or a shooting or a, you know, some case going on or something happening in another part of the world that's just self-serving to whoever's a part of it. And so, um, yeah, if, where there's a seems to be significant lack of character, sometimes that can lead you to think, well... Are we making progress as Christians who proclaim truth? Christians who are trying to be bright and salty and aromatic? Is there, can't, do we even believe people can change? Maybe that's part of the jaded mentality is, man, people stink and they're not going to change. That's Just so you know, I get it if you feel that way, but as a Christian, that's no way to live your very short life here on earth, that people stink and no one really changes. That's, there's a lot more hope in the gospel than that. It can feel like that sometimes, but there's a lot more hope in the gospel. In any other thoughts about how we might find ourselves cynical and jaded about the world we live in. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, mocked, made fun of. Yes. Yeah. Did, did anybody keep up with the world vision uh, craziness in the last 48 hours, I guess? World Vision's massive, multi-billion dollar, they made a billion dollars last year. Uh, they brought it in in, in, in uh, donations. Top 10 um, nonprofits in the country do, do work all over the globe in connection with churches. And they issued a statement about welcoming, they will allow employment in their organization for homosexuals as long as they're legally married. Which... Immediately, it was 
it's shocking because of how many connections they have to the local church, and the local church makes up over 50%, actually, of their billion-dollar year of donations. And so I was like, well, that was an interesting decision. Let's see how that plays out. And so I'm just kind of sitting there on my computer, just kind of every couple hours I check and see what happens. And, and, uh, and it's interesting because what you said, it was, it was most of the tone of what you read in the comment sections and read about, you know, editors and people who are commenting on it is, is just mocking, just belittling and just, um, just, you know, saying the worst of, of the worst about people and assuming the absolute worst about people. And so, and the Christians weren't much better. We, we generally come across as just as judgmental and high-handed as everyone else. And so keep that in mind if you want to make an online comment on anything. Um, but they, they were, I mean, it was just this, you know, fakes and everything you do is horrible and and all the while, all these children that they're helping are sort of becoming pawns in this sort of cultural development, which is just really sad. And then, so everyone, there's like people who are anti-church who are saying, we're going to take care of these orphans. And so like they lost 2,000 sponsorships, but then they gained however many hundred from people who were anti-church, anti-establishment, who were going to help. And then by mid-afternoon today, they reversed their decision and said that they were wrong because so many members of the church engaged them in Matthew 18 and pointed out how they were moving was wrong. Um, I don't have a big statement to make on it, but it reiterates what you're saying. Most of what it was was what you're standing up and speaking truth or trying to say something. Originally, they were saying, we're not the church. It's not our place to make this call, which you, can, you should be able to appreciate that to an extent. But in making the call that they did make, they undermined the very thing that the church would be fully, wholeheartedly trying to establish and stand on. And so it was very, uh, very interesting, but most of the comments you heard were just, just slander, just speaking the worst about people, assuming the worst about people. But if you can kind of zoom out and look at that way the process played out, it's like, it actually played out pretty good, <laughs> to be honest, the way it all ended. Not that it's ended, because inevitably they're going to get hammered by some crazy liberal in the IRS, but that's neither here or there. Um, just, an, just an opinion. Um, so, um, uh, one of the thoughts that Deborah shared was, whenever we are tempted to feel cynical and jaded about the world that we live in, Jeremiah might be good for what ails us. Uh, its message about coming judgment is important for those who long for justice. The message in Jeremiah about coming justice is very important for those who long for justice, who want to see Justice executed and people being taken care of and those who are not um, interested in the, the good of others, that they would you know, find their proper place as well. And, and he goes on to say it may be even more important for those who have not longed for justice. Um, because Jeremiah tells us that justice is coming. And so the question that I would pose to you, you know, it's not an answer out loud question, just consider it personally, sort of a, a self-assessment do you long for justice or not? Do you long for justice or not? And if you do long for justice, what does that really mean to you? What are you, what are you saying you're actually longing for? Uh, one of the things that we see through the major and minor prophets is God's great prophets came amid decay among and around God's people. So whether it was God's people or the people around God's people, the prophets would show up when there was just decay and things were sort of falling apart. So what we're going to look at tonight are three things in regard to judgment. We're going to look at the cause of judgment, the promise of judgment, and the priority of judgment. And then I'll tell you what we're going to do next week at the end. So first is the cause of judgment. Um, has anyone ever read through the book of Jeremiah? 
Nice. Was that fun? Okay. Yeah, the first 45 of 52 chapters are a very clear expression of how God is passionately angry with his people. 45 of 52 chapters, God is passionately angry with his people. Uh, look at 116. We'll just hit a few of these and begin to kind of climb into the text and understand it. Jeremiah 116 says, let's see, uh, I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the work of their own hands. What are the charges there in 116? If we're looking at the cause of judgment, why is judgment coming? What do we see as one of the causes of the coming judgment in that verse? What'd they do? Yep, rejected God and worshiped idols. Uh, What does it mean to worship idols? Putting something above God, and how were they doing that? Work with their hands. It'd be like a stone, or a tree, or a statue, or something they whittled out of beechwood, whatever. How does that work for us today? Obviously, we don't have a lot of figurines laying around that we're worshiping, but how does idolatry work for us today? How does that play out? TV, sports, money, pleasure. What else? Yeah, self-sufficiency, your own ability. There's a number of things. We could probably sufficiently convict everybody living here if we took about, sitting here, if we took about 10 minutes to, to really try to <laughs> figure out what it is that is, is, could be considered idolatry for us today. But here the charges are that they have uh, forsaken God wickedly and they're offering, they're burning incense, they're offering sacrifices and they are worshiping things that their hands have made, things that they can see, things that are tangible, things that they can show control over, have no doubt about it, all forms of idolatry are rooted in deep-seated pride of your own self-sufficiency. I want to, I mean, the nation of Israel made a golden calf. Is there anything easier to exercise your own full control over than a golden calf? If you don't like the way it's looking at you, you can just kind of turn it around. Not even a golden cow, a golden calf, something far less terrifying than the quaking of Sinai. Um, So... um, Jeremiah is called to prophesy precisely because God's people have broken their covenant with the Lord. You know, in Hebrews, we've been talking about our new covenant and how it's a better covenant. It's established on better promises, and, and it's so much better so that we can't break it. God, Christ has fulfilled and accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. Um, but in the old covenant, our, God's people were guilty of breaking that covenant again and again and again. And so Jeremiah is called to prophesy. The things he shares in this book are precisely because they've broken that. Look at 2.13. In 2.13 it says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What does this mean? What do you how were they doing that? It's poetic, broken cisterns, can't hold the water, he's the living water. How, how would they have been doing that? Yeah, do things their own way for their own glory. How would that play out for us today? 
trusting in anything besides the Lord. So again, what are some of the broken cisterns that we can create that don't hold water? Our own works? Relationships. What do you mean by that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. If there's any person in your life that's not God that you say, as long as they're here, I'll be okay. You need to look at that and consider, are you making an idol out of that relationship? Is that one of your broken cisterns? I like this term, broken cisterns, because it takes us from the vague things that are obviously around us, of you know, TV and entertainment and you know, whatever else, to these things that we're creating with our own hands that we're trying to, to find um, joy in and find, well, what's the purpose of, of, the, of what he's talking about here? Satisfaction and, and living waters. I mean, the things that give us life, the things where we think we find real, true, abundant, deep, abiding life. And so consider, just as, as, as part of this study, consider what are some of your broken cisterns? What are some of the things that you see as non-negotiable that maybe are more negotiable and maybe they're taking the place of God because they don't hold water? Look at uh, 2.20. I'm going to read 2.20 through 28. And um, what I want you all to consider, the question I'm going to ask when I'm done reading, is what has God likened his people to? And this is where we will get our our really good um, topic for our study tonight. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I'm not unclean, I have not gone after the bales? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done, a restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness, in her heat, sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seeks her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. He's saying, don't, don't try too hard because it's not going to take too much effort to find that one. Keep your feet from going unshod. Keep your throat from thirst. But you said it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their prophets, their priests and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father, to a stone, you gave me birth. For they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the, in the time of their trouble, they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they could save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. These few verses really capture the heart of the first 45 chapters of Jeremiah. And really, when we look at what he compares them to, we could almost title the study any of those things. So to be clear, what did he compare his people to? He compared them to a number of things. What were some of them? Don't be bashful. It is what it is. 
Whores, but not just whores. What kind of whores? Did did 10 people just say donkey whores? Did that just happen? Just want to make sure we're on the same page, okay? 10 people just said donkey whores at the same time, okay? But they, all 10 of you go, the donkey, 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 donkey. <laughs> what else are they compared to? Camels. Camels. Wild vine. Thief, oxen. What else? Thief. None of those come across to me as real affirming and encouraging and way to go, thumbs up, good job, my people, who I've placed my name on. This is a sad state here that they're in. They are not operating as God's people. They are turning from God. They are forsaking their God to such a degree that he is looking at the people on whom he has placed his name, and he is saying, y'all are like donkey whores in heat. Whoever wants to find you doesn't have to work hard to lay hold of you. It's a, it should be very sobering. I mean, obviously the language is shocking. I think maybe it's meant to be. I think maybe it's supposed to be kind of shocking to say, whoa, did he just say that to them? Yes, he did. You're infinitely worthy of worship, all wise, lacking in nothing God. Just said that to his people because he wants to make very clear to them through the prophet Jeremiah how they're acting and how inappropriate and unfitting it is because of what he has placed on their lives as a call to obedience. Now, look at 3, 1 through 5. It says, If a man divorces his wife, if she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers. So not just a whore, but a whore who has played the whore with many lovers. And would you return to me, declares the Lord? Lift up your eyes to the bare heights and see where have you not been ravished. By the wayside, you sat awaiting lovers like an Arab in the wilderness. You've polluted the land with your vile whoredom. There's a Mother's Day message from about four years ago titled Whoredom that Ben preached. (laughs) In case anyone's interested in that. I'll be preaching this Mother's Day in case you're interested in that. Um, But yeah, with your whoredom, therefore the showers have been withheld, the spring rain has not come, yet you have the forehead of a whore, you refuse to be ashamed. Have you not, have you not just now called to me, my father, you are the friend of my youth, will he be angry forever, will he be indignant to the end? Behold, you have spoken, but you have done all the evil that you could. What we see here, there's another um, version of the Bible, another translation that says, the same thing there, but it says you're a brazen prostitute. Um, you refuse to blush with shame. You're so headlong into your sin that it doesn't even make you blush anymore. You're brazen. You're calloused. It's just the way you are, and you don't care about changing. Brazen, unchanging. And, and at the end, you've done all that. Um, behold, you have spoken, but you've done all that evil that you could. That's like saying, you're saying those words, oh God, you are my God from my youth, but 
look at all your evil actions. They don't match up. Look at 731. Look at what else they're doing. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. What else are they doing? Child sacrifice. Shocking. They're offering up human sacrifices of their own family members in their false and detestable religion. They have gone so far down into the deep end that they see it fitting as an act of worship to throw their living children into a fire under the name of Moloch. Detestable. When we read things like that, we should marvel that God's even engaging them with words and not fire. Really, it is... It is a, there's a lot of mercy in Jeremiah, which we should be thankful for when we're talking about justice, and we'll get to more of that later. But they're offering up human sacrifices of their own family members in this false and detestable religion that God wants to make very clear. That did not come out of my mouth, nor was that even in my mind. And let's look at what 610 reveals. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised, they cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn, they take no pleasure of it. What is their response to the word? How do they view the word of God? Scorn. What does that mean? They hate it, have contempt for it. It doesn't please them, it's not something that they want to hear. It indicates that God's word has become offensive to them. In his notes, Endeavor again asks, what happens when God's word becomes offensive to God's people? This is not a far-fetched question. It may have felt far-fetched for our grandparents, maybe our parents, but the way things are going right now, what happens when God's people, when, when God's word becomes offensive to God's people? And the, the, the answer is found in 530 through 31. 530 through 31, an appalling and horrible thing has, um, has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. The priests rule at their, their, at their direction. My people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? When God's word becomes offensive to God's people, they pick teachers and prophets who will teach them something else. And here it says, my people loved to have it this way. They love to have it this way. They're so far from me that the priests are doing whatever they want. The prophets are saying whatever they want. And my people love it. Because that to them is less offensive than my word. So we have some very clear causes of judgment. 45 chapters pretty much go on like that. This is the point in the study where you're probably like, oh gosh, this is almost over. Seriously, this is impressive, this is weighty. 45 of the 52 chapters go on like that. But then we see a promise of judgment. God would ultimately give his people over to the ones that they really trusted. 
the same thing we see in Romans 1.18. Look at uh, Jeremiah 2.35. just want you all to see a few different things. We'll read through these quickly. Not a lot of commentary on them, but in 2.35, it says, You say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me, but I will bring you to judgment for saying I have not sinned. Part of what he will bring them to judgment for is their proclamation in their brazen, outward, obvious, wicked, detestable sinfulness was that they didn't sin. He said, that's one of the reasons that I'm going to bring you to judgment. And then in 3.6, it says, really 3.6 through like 4.12, I won't read all of it, but it says in 3.6, the Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one? Israel, how she went up on every high hill under every green tree, and there she played the whore. And I thought, after she's done this, she'll return to me, but she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Over and over and over again, we see this playing out. But what we see is God's call to repentance as well. It's amazing. Look at thirteen or look at um, eleven. The Lord said to me, "Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, "Return, faithless Israel," declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice." declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you one from a city, two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. We see even in the midst of this promise of judgment, this guarantee of what's coming, he still urges them towards repentance, saying, confess what you've done, acknowledge your guilt, and turn to me, and I will rescue you. I will clean you. I will make you pure. I will accept you. And look at 422. He says, my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. What they're wise in is in doing evil. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. So, things aren't going so hot for them. And even in the midst of the craziness, God offers them an an opportunity to repent. Um, Dever notes in this, he says, when we think of judgment, we often think of what God does towards those who are not his people. A lot of times when we think of the judgment of God, we're like, yeah, come get the bad people. Come take care of the ones who are losers and they're wrong and they're sinners. And I Dever throughout the it's like this book about that thick, and like every other page he's like, friend, let me tell you something. And he's always friend. And at that point he says, Well, friend, I have news for you. If you're not one of the bad people, you have no need for this or any other sermon. Neither do you have any need for a church. The church is specifically for the bad people. The church is for the people who know that they need God to love them in such a way that he changes them. The church is for people who know that they need God to love them in a way that changes them. In his love, he will not leave us as the broken, wounded, wrong-headed, self-defeating, and fallen people that we were when he found us. He will love us effectively in Christ and make us better than we were. In fact, he will ultimately make us perfect. We'll be sinless in eternity because of what Christ accomplished for us. So we have this cause of the judgment. We have this promise of the judgment. And finally, the priority of the judgment. Turn to 
Jeremiah 12, 1. The priority of judgment. This is where it gets kind of interesting to me as far as the things that often cloud the forefront of what I can see and what I consider when it comes to judgment. In 12.1, we see this. Jeremiah's complaint is what it's titled in the little subtitle. Jeremiah says to God, Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet, I would plead my case before you. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You ever asked that question? We kind of started with it tonight on why did the bad people seem to do good and the good people seem to not do so good? And he, this honest moment, the inspired prophet of God asks God quite honestly, why do the wicked prosper and will they always prosper? Because at this moment, Jerusalem has been surrounded by, we've seen Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and right now the biggest threat is Babylon, and we will see by the end of the book that with right reason, Babylon is a huge threat. And so in the middle of all this sinfulness, Jeremiah kind of pokes his head up and says, God, why do all the wicked people prosper around us? These other nations, the Babylonians, why, why are they thriving? And is it always going to be that way? Will they always prosper? I would ask you, do you ever struggle with the same observation? Why does it seem like those who are morally corrupt always have more resources, more joy, more steadfastness, less threat, all these things? It's easy to take a few minutes and look around and see some things that don't seem to add up. And so he's asking, Lord, why is it that way? And will it always be that way? Al Mohler, in a recent address, it was funny, he was, he was actually addressing the Latter-day Saints. And... He started off by saying, I'm not here to talk about whether I think we're going to be in heaven together, but I think we might be in jail together if we don't change some things. It's like, well, Al, that was a blunt way to start your, your conversation. But he, he, in, in his address, he's the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And in his address, he says he expressed deep concern about the rapid change in values held by Americans. He states, the most fundamental values of civilization itself are threatened, and we're witness to one of the most comprehensive and fast-paced moral revolutions ever experienced by humanity. The velocity and breadth of this revolution are breathtaking, and the consequences are yet incalculable. Incalculable. Um, He says, American society is dismantling the very structures that have allowed for the enjoyment and preservation of human liberty and respect for life. We are engaged in a headlong effort to replace the convictions that gave birth to democracy and ordered liberty with a new set of convictions that will lead to the emergence of a very different culture, society, and civilization. He he closes by saying the basis of the meltdown in values is men have forgotten God. He's talking to these people with whom he does not share the same beliefs within the faith, yet he's saying things in, in America are changing and, and this is the most radical moral revolution humanity has ever seen because of how quickly things are turning, how quickly you're being labeled hateful or any number of, um, of, of horrible labels that would indicate that you are closed-minded if you're a Christian. And he's saying that um, dismantling the very structures that, that made up the things we enjoy Remember in Ecclesiastes, in our study, 
We pose this question as to why faithful people are dying because of their faith while liars extend their lives through lying. And there was this reality that hit us in Ecclesiastes that you can't always know exactly how things have played out or why they've played out. He's put eternity in our hearts. He's given us things to be busy with so that from the beginning to the end, we're gonna, we want to know how it's going to go. But we're not God. And so what God does in Ecclesiastes, what God did through the wisdom literature, and what I think God is doing here again in the major prophets is saying, it is good that you trust me in the things that you understand. However, a further step needs to be taken where you will trust me in the things you don't understand. You hear that? The basis of your trust in God is not that you can completely wrap your head around him. It is good to trust him. It is you should take very seriously the call to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. To, to gain knowledge that doesn't puff up, but that builds others up. You should desperately work hard to understand God's will and to abide by it. But the basis of your faith in him is not completely being able to wrap your head around him. And so what I feel like he is saying to us through the wisdom literature, through here into the major prophets, is there are things that will happen that you won't be able to understand, but I'm still God. It's like, consider Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers. I was reading recently that we're one of the first generations, or at least within our couple decades here, that we demand an explanation for everything. We think we're owed an explanation for everything. But when Joseph was thrown into slavery, you didn't see him going, all right, God, I was working hard, I was respectful of my dad. Why'd you throw me into... Why'd you imprison me here in Pharaoh's place, Egypt, of all places? Why? No, he went to work, and he trusted God, and he persevered daily. And so we should trust God in the things that we can wrap our head around, but we shouldn't stop there. We should know that God is always infinitely worthy of trust, even when it doesn't make sense to us. And when we see wicked people prospering and faithful people dying because of their faith, there's a big part of us that could say, what? Is this worth it? Am I persevering in the right thing? Am I on the right side of the line here? Is this worthwhile? Do I want to raise my children knowing it's probably just going to be worse for them and their children? Don't want, to, don't want to continue to move in this thing called Christianity? But we trust God. We don't forget God knowing that he's, trust, he's worthy of trust in the things we can understand and he's just as worthy of trust in the things that we can't wrap our head around because we're not God. So here what I'm seeing is what, what is God's priority in judgment? Will it go on like this forever? Will the wicked always prosper with the prophet Jeremiah? We ask that question. Will it always be like that? And the answer is not always. Not forever. God will ultimately bring judgment on all of the wicked. But here's what we need to see first. This is what I think our main, one of our main things is for this study tonight. Turn to 1 Peter 4. Will it always be like this? Will we always see suffering of saints? Will we always see the prospering of those who don't care about God at all and who are against him and who def defile his, his, his precepts? And in terms of the priority of God's judgment, we need to see 1 Peter 4.17. 1 Peter 4.17 says this, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? I'm going to read that again. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those 
who do not obey the gospel of God. He's not implying that everyone in the household obeys the gospel of God. He's saying it's beginning here. What happens for those who aren't obeying God? What happens for those in the house? What happens for those outside of the house? But here's what I want us to see. Those who are not God's, those who don't belong to God, those who speak against God, defy God, will be judged. It's inevitable. But God's people must stop and recognize that judgment begins with the family of God, both corporately and individually. In his study, Dever goes on to say, he says, if Jeremiah spends 45 chapters focusing on the faults of God's own people, should we spend most of our spiritual lives focusing on the faults of all those around us? Should we spend most of our time focusing on the faults of non-Christians or society at large, focusing on the faults of other members of our own family, focusing on the faults of our government, focusing on the faults of secular media? Why should we have any other expectation? Should we spend most of our time focusing on the faults of all those others when 45 of the 52 chapters were focusing on the faults of God's own people? He said, no, we should begin as individuals by observing our own hearts and lives, just as God begins with his own people. We should also begin as a church by seeking to be open to the Lord's correction and not by focusing on how everyone else is wrong and we are right and they need to be corrected. I trust that we are right about our understanding of the gospel of Christ, but there are many ways in which we will never be right this side of heaven. If we are truly God's, God's people, we will humbly acknowledge our continuing need for his loving discipline. I would just ask, in your walk, in what ways are you acknowledging your need for his discipline? And considering that, turn to Hebrews 12. Considering the discipline of God. Starting in verse 3, it says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's saying to those who are suffering because of their faith, for those who are on the receiving end of injustice because of their faith, he's saying a way for you to be bolstered in that, to not lose sight of what's important, to not get so focused on everybody else that you neglect your own soul and the soul of those in your own household, to help bolster you and encourage you and keep you strong through that, consider Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. If you're enduring from sinners hostility against yourself, you're not alone in that. That's what Christ endured. And the point of considering that is so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I don't know if there's anything that has more potential to make us weary or faint-hearted than being wrong for our faith. That day after day trying to do the right thing in a manner that pleases God in a worshipful manner, in a sacrificial manner, and, and people not appreciating it. People calling you a liar. People calling you hateful. To, to try to speak clearly and boldly and gently and even in a winsome manner about what marriage is. And to be called the equivalent of a, of a racist towards someone who believes otherwise. That's hard. That can wear us down. That could cause us to grow weary and faint-hearted. And he says, consider Christ who endured the same hostility from sinners. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So he says, consider Christ, but don't stop with just the reality that he suffered too. Continue with the reality. He suffered a lot more 
you didn't resist to the point of shedding your own blood, and you haven't, and you won't. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. Part of your endurance and your Christian walk is so that you can get the discipline from God that you need. It is for discipline you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. How did God discipline Israel during the time of Jeremiah? What was a large form of their discipline? Mm -hmm. They were taken captive by evil nations. Hmm. What else? What are some other ways they were disciplined? What did Jeremiah do? What did Isaiah do? Prophesied. They spoke God's word to him. Plainly, clearly, boldly. What I want us to see here is sometimes we think of discipline as God saying, ah, 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 ah. okay. And that's it. God's discipline is not limited to just a, a love tap in the right direction. He allowed his entire people on whom he placed his name to be taken captive by an evil, wicked, disgusting nation. And he allowed it to happen more than once. What are some ways that God disciplines us today? Obviously, no one's going to say, ah, 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 ah. Mm -hmm. Your conscience can convict you? Yes. And the Holy Spirit can convict you for something wrong you've done? Piercing our hearts with the truth? Yeah? Is it... see and experience and feel the futility of what we're following. So, so is it all inward? Is the discipline of God all inward? No. Sometimes the sin of other people against us can be a way that God disciplines us. I've never been so convicted of my own wicked, gross sin as when someone sinned against me horribly and I looked at them and thought, well, you jerk. You piece of trash. Well, why would you bring that up in here? What in the world? And it's usually, sometimes it's moments, sometimes it's months, where I realize, man, I got some things I need to, that's the discipline of the Lord revealing to me a dark corner that I didn't know was there, shining a light through this horrible circumstance. So, I mean, 
Think about all the things that shine a light in the dark corners of your life and reveal where you're really putting your trust. I mean, it can be everything from being sinned against to unexpected calamity, sickness, financial woes. They're not all just pointless frustrations. God has purposes in all of these things. And a lot of times it's our discipline. That doesn't, and you can't take that too far, because if you take it too far, it's like, well, if you're doing good, you'll be financially stable. And if you're doing good, you'll be healthy. And that's how you get the health wealth gospel. And that's not what we're saying here. But I want us to see each of the things that we might find ourselves in. Heartache, calamity, confusion, being on the receiving end of injustice, something wrong. Maybe God's using that as his form of discipline to shine a bright light into a dark corner that you didn't even know was there. One of the things that Paul Tripp says over and over again is our view of ourselves is, an, is as accurate as a carnival mirror. And we need other people to hold up the mirror of God's word to help us see things more accurately. And if that's not what he does in discipline, what is he doing? Of course that's what he's doing. He's helping us to see him more clearly so we can see ourselves more clearly and repent where it's appropriate. And what does it say the point is here? What, what, is, what is the aim of his discipline? Holiness is the aim of his discipline. And the peaceful fruit of righteousness is the aim of his discipline. His discipline. Holiness is the aim of his discipline, and the peaceful fruit of righteousness is the aim of his discipline. And let me tell you, if you've ever gone through a calamity where you're filled with anxiety, and you're, man, why is this going so bad? Why is this such a nightmare? To go through that process of discipline and land in that place where you have a peaceful fruit of righteousness. I love that it's a peaceful fruit. Because in the midst of the, the calamity, the midst of the, the, the discipline, it says discipline is always painful at the moment. It's always unpleasant at the moment. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. In our discipline, we're trained. And at the end of that training or somewhere along the path of that training for that thing, it says we yield peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's a calming of your soul. I was reading something this week that said, um, it said, people who have, it says, cast your cares on the Lord. Don't be anxious, but cast your cares. And he said, so really, the person who doesn't carry their anxiety around with them, but actually trusts Jesus, it can be, we could call them a carefree person. I just wonder how many of us could, could label ourselves carefree. People who, are, who don't have anxiety, but who trust him. And all of this, under the umbrella of judgment, it's, it's inevitable. He will judge in particular ways. So next week, where we're going to go is we're going to talk about the herald of judgment. What was next week we're going to consider? What was the climate and the setting for this coming judgment? And how did Jeremiah share it? We're also going to talk about the difference in judgment between those who are his and those who are not. And where mercy plays in. And next week we're also going to talk about the role of God's people as he exercises judgment. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for being a sovereign God who's never made one mistake. We thank you for being a God who needs neither sleep nor slumber, yet in peace we lay down and sleep for you alone make us dwell in safety. You watch over us in ways we don't understand. You discipline us out of love. And I'm so thankful that we can actually expect there to be some result of that, of holiness and the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.